warning this episode contains strong political opinions and background dog noises broadcasting from a subspace signal that will divert us to starbase 11 for heretofore unknown reasons this is politrex the prime directive the declaration of human rights the united federation of planets the united nations world war ii the dominion federation war the art of war the teachings of sirach jesus christ Welcome everyone to Politrex, the show where we look at the socio-political happenings of today and in history through the episodes, movies, and philosophy of Star Trek. We keep it as real as a firm grip on a Klingon time crystal. My name is Barry DeFord, and with me is the often imitated, never replicated co-host, Mr. Shashank Avaru. How are you doing today, Shashank? Namaste, Homo sapiens. I am well. I could I could be better, but so could be all. I could be worse, but I kind of think so could we all. So I'm just grateful to be here recording on a beautiful Saturday night with you. It is a beautiful Saturday night, and I have to say, there's been a lot of Star Trek watching on my end and, and some gloomy weather, so it was kind of nice to go on a nice away mission with my dogs today, even though we still are experiencing a little bit of snowfall in my neck of the woods. I don't assume you're getting uh, the same kind of weather patterns. No, it's just been rain and sunshine here, which, again, now that I hear your side of it, I cannot complain at all. Before we get started... I really have one person I would like to thank for people who might have picked up on maybe my sound qualities being a lot better. It's because I got a new microphone and I didn't buy this microphone. Bill Smith of Trek Geeks bought it for me as a surprise gift. It was a deeply moving thing and there are days when this community just makes everything so much more easy to deal with. All I did was reach out to some friends asking them, hey, do you have a recommendation for a microphone? And Bill just the next day messaged me and said, hey, uh, there's a microphone on your, uh, on the way to your house. So I, I heard that you have a hand in this also. So a little bit of like 5% of the thanks to you, but the rest of the 95%. Thanks, Bill. That was that was very nice of you. Our thanks definitely go to to Bill there. He's uh, he's a stand-up guy, and actually their their latest episode um, on on just how to be a fan in Star Trek fandom is is a great sort of one putting their money where their mouth is. is It's a very wonderful thing just to have those kind of moments of kindness. I know that uh, sometimes we as... We as human beings either fall in hard times or sometimes even just these random acts of kindness just uh, just it, it hammers home for me how important this this Star Trek community is and how wonderful and fantastic it is. And, you know, we talk about it a lot on, you know, Queer Trek. We've talked a lot about it on on Disco Trek and on Shore Leave. And, you know, I mean, it's even come up on, on Weekly Trek and then, of course, here on Politrex, I think you see a lot of that echoing out. And then, of course, even even into uh, Trek FM, you know, I feel that uh, coming from them as well. And the numerous other podcasts, I just, uh, I'm always really happy to be a part of this this fun crew because I can, I can disappear for a while and come back and feel like I never really left. So I'm really happy this happened for you, Shashank, and uh, you deserve it. You're, you're a fantastic addition to this community, and it's nice to see just the love you're getting from fantastic human beings. You're all the best. I, I don't know what else to say, except I'm grateful. And thank you. I, I asked Will, hey, what should I say? I, I don't know what to say to this. And he said, just say a lot of good words out of that microphone. Yeah, don't don't disappoint Bill Smith. He will come for you. And he will tell me on Twitter if I disappoint him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He will well, at me and tell me. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I'm pretty sure uh, I'm pretty sure Dan will will sort of distract from the disappointment to a degree for Bill. But uh, yeah, you will have to be on better behavior. But as I'd mentioned, there are quite a few different podcasts to listen to and so many different fantastic spaces. And of course, we are perhaps a little bit biased here with the fantastic catalog of podcasts that we have here on the Tricorder Transmissions Podcast Network. If you're uh, popping around our website, you can always support us on Patreon. It helps us keep the dilithium stores at maximum. And of course, it just helps us run the podcast network. Of course, there are costs associated with all that sort of stuff. And we always want to make sure that we're getting swag and merch to you. So uh, you do end up getting that money back in in different ways. Of course, Shashank and I will also uh, debate 
on your topic, whatever you would like, if you do reach the, is it $5 tier, Shashank? Yes, it's the $5 tier. I believe uh, it's called the Latinum tier. Mm-hmm. And if you are a patron and you're paying us $5 or more, one of the cool things you can do, and there are benefits across our podcasts, but for Polytrex, you can choose a debate topic. You can design 10 questions and Barry and I will debate it. All we ask is that you send us the questions 24 hours before, so we have a little bit of a heads up. But I was thinking it, it they should all be very much political and social, very relevant politics. But honestly, if you just want to make a joke episode, we'll do it. We are not above that here at Polytrex. We love cracking jokes and being funny. So if it's a funny episode, we are all for it, aren't we? Absolutely. Also, if you want to get in touch with us just regularly on the social medias, you can always find us at Politrex on Twitter. Same thing on Facebook. And of course, you can also find me at B-J-O-R-N-D-E-F-J-O-R-D. That's BDEF. You'll notice me usually posting about Star Trek or politics because, of course, that's basically what I live, breathe, eat, and sleep. Where do we find you, Shashank? People can find me on at gutter underscore hero on Twitter. That's G-U-T-D-E-R underscore H-E-R-O. And you can find Zod there, too. <laughs> yes, dogs will be in this podcast. I tweet about nerdy stuff because I'm a nerd. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, WWE, a lot of Star Trek. And Cobra Kai is coming out. That season two is going to be out April 24th. So I'll be tweeting about that. But most importantly, we are starting a new podcast here on Tricorder called Faraday. You can look that up uh, if you just type in F-A-R-A-D-A-Y. It's uh, hosted and completely organized by Felicity Pickens, so I don't want to take any credit for it. I am. It's a tabletop podcast, and it's a role-playing game podcast in the world of Star Trek. I am playing Captain Varun Rai on there. So USS Faraday is the ship, and I'm the captain. If you enjoy everything we do here, chances are it'll be nothing like that. So come and listen to me and all of us doing something a little different. I look forward to heckling um, in any way, shape, or form I can at your captaincy. I will uh, just nitpick here and there and, and, and all that when I when I uh, hear the, the episodes drop. That should be quite entertaining. Just remember, even on my birthday, I will never be Jellica. <laughs> Bringing up the past. Good. Well, I think with that, let's get on to the news. Welcome back to the news. We've got a couple tasty treats for you today. Some uh, more conversation on the United States uh, migrant crisis that is still taking place. The uh, Trump administration is not relenting in their complete and total crappiness on that whole thing. And we will be talking a little bit about some foreign policy, again, sort of United States-centric, but uh, talking about the Saudi Arabians are threatening threatening to ditch the United States dollar as the number one currency for trading oil. And it has a lot to do with the uh, policies that the United States is putting forward. But let's start here with the, uh, the migrant crisis. So I mean, Star Trek is no stranger to the idea of people being moved from place to place or people fleeing. Um, you know, some of the some of the better episodes have come that way. And of course, the best cinematic episode of Star Trek, which is Star Trek Insurrection, is of course a uh, a fantastic look into what happens when people are being moved or perhaps possibly being forced to move often against their will or in a, get, getting put in a situation where geographically we have a lot of tension taking place. So in this case, what is happening is the Trump administration is saying that it should take approximately about a year to sift through the sift through the 47,000 cases of unaccompanied children, the Justice Department said. So taking a year, these kids are going to be gone away from their parents, away from caregivers. For Sorry I, for correcting you, but I think the article says two years. It says up to two years. I'm going to get to that. Okay. You know, you've got these kids who are who are not getting their caregiver. They're not seeing caregivers. They're not getting the, the, the care that they should be getting. And when this all kind of comes together, there's even worry that it could take longer than that uh, one year 
period. And so the ACLU is uh, is trying to sue the United States, uh, I, you know, to try to get these families reunited. Um, it's not looking like it's going to be a thing. And it is very, very disappointing that we are still dealing with with a crisis that, that just, I mean, really the way this gets solved is through amnesties, is through actually taking the time to build an infrastructure for people who are coming to the United States. Of course, we can talk about how this is uh, what we would consider perhaps an illegal crossing in some cases, but I mean, these are human beings. We've got to we've got to be able to take care. And I mean, a lot of the things that these folks are fleeing from is often United States uh, meddling in their own countries that is causing conditions to be so bad that uh, they have to get out of there. I really see this as a failure on the uh, on the ability to create an infrastructure to protect and to help and to care. So, yeah, no, I'm not really happy about that. What do you think, Mr. Avaru? A lot of good points, and I'm glad you brought up insurrection. I think another good point of discussion would be journey's end uh, for some other reasons, but it also presents a few facets of the issue that people seem to want to put aside. I read another comment from Trump where he, quote unquote, said the U.S. is full. I don't even know what that means, but it's scary. If you think about it, the amount of gaslighting that has happened in this situation, the amount of whataboutism, and the successful complete blanket cover-up of the sheer amount of crimes that have been committed against children, the most vulnerable part of our society, children, uh, when there, I believe there are two or three children that have died since the whole babies in cages thing started. And I, I don't even know if calling this administration Romulan is an insult to Romulans. I, I, I don't know if they would at least engage in those kind of morals. They're at least, and we'll talk about Romulans soon, but it's, it's just so appalling, everything that's happening. And uh, there was another comment that came out. We are recording on the 6th of April, and I want to say yesterday or the day before, Trump said people seeking asylum are not humans, they're animals. That's Third Reich language. That's where it was said against the Jews. I know it's uncomfortable to hear, but that is where we are. Yeah. And we're all responsible for this. Everyone, irrespective of whether you voted for this or not, by not standing up, by not saying no is no when it needed to be said. And now even though it's being done legally and it's it's being done out in the open, he's, it, his words are kind of coming true. At, at the beginning of his campaign, he once joked that if he killed someone on the busiest street in New York, he he wouldn't be arrested. He's clearly led to deaths now in, in this migrant crisis, and he's still the president. I, I don't know if there's a whole lot to say from the perspective of Star Trek, except it's just, I, I think it's a good time to reflect and be vigilant and if if we cannot stop this i think it's really time to do everything we can to vote these people out well and and what does the united federations of planets stand for right it it does it does stand as a humanitarian uh society it's it's people who are able to evenly distribute the means to survive the material conditions to make sure that everyone has a good and solid and happy life and i think you know, we, we really need to start seeing the United Federation of Planets as more of a, a an allegory for our planet rather than one specific country. I know I think originally Gene Roddenberry sort of looked at the UFP as sort of an adjunct or an extension of a united planet, but it still had a lot of American characteristics. And, you know, constitutionally, that's not necessarily a bad thing um, when it comes to a person's rights and and what they have rights for it's it, it it this all really does come down in the loopholes and in some of the more racist infrastructures that exist within both my country and the United States i mean this is definitely not me coming from some high holy place uh, canada also has a lot to answer for when it comes to people who have migrated across its borders or even people who were here when my ancestors the settler canadians crossed over into these lands as well. So I really think, you know, if you are a person who loves Star Trek in in that that really deep way where where giving and kindness is something that you see as a a value that you hold dear um because of 
because of what you see in this in this uh, in this franchise, then maybe it's time to to really start acting. Maybe it's really time to start speaking out against this sort of stuff. Because yeah, you know, a vote that'll come. But uh, what about in the meantime? And I think that's for me one of the scariest things is I mean, there's people being held in parkades. That's uh, that's pretty freaky. The show is called Polytrex, and I feel like sometimes we get on our own soapbox, and I think that is part of what the show is about. But there are a lot of people, even in our community, if you're listening to the show, there's a good probability you're a good person. You are doing everything you can to to not actively be part of everything that's happening negatively. Uh, when I when I say happening, I mean negatively, like the migrant crisis. But I don't know if it's enough to just be at a point where you say, you know, politics is not for me. I just want to sit and watch Star Trek or watch whatever I want to watch and keep all of this shut outside my world. I don't know if it if it is okay to be in that place anymore, especially when you're someone who adheres to the ideals of Starfleet and the ideals of UFP. Use Use your voice. Talk to people around you. Tell them that it's not okay. Stand up if you're seeing injustice happening. It's the only way we'll stop this. And I think if you know, if you do say that, you know, you just want it, you're not a political person or something like that, basically being non-political basically means I approve of the status quo, right? I mean, you can be unpolitical and still be community oriented. And, and if that's how you want to sort of identify what you do, I mean, if you're acting within your community, if you're, if you're contributing all those sorts of things, that is a political statement as well. And in terms of political statements, our next story has a lot to do with that. Saudi Arabia is considering ditching the U.S. dollar as the currency with which they trade oil. The Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC, is now starting to wonder if if it's not being treated very well. And Saudi Arabia has basically threatened to sell oil in currencies other than the U.S. dollar if Washington passes a bill that uh, exposes OPEC to U.S. antitrust lawsuits. Basically, what we're looking at here is is the United States is trying to use a very heavy hand to control the way oil gets moved around the world, and that's a really big problem. They they don't have a monopoly on this this resource that you know. I mean, as much as it's destroying our the the burning of it is destroying our planet. At the same time, it is a very very important commodity. Um, they've gone so far as to impose sanctions on vessels and companies who are heading to, between Cuba and Venezuela. And so you can see how oil is such a political tool. I'd be interested to see if in the future, or at least even the near future, given the one short trek that took place, if Discovery is going to be looking a little more deeply into dilithium and its limited supply and how how the ufp ends up kind of dealing with that problem because we haven't really seen that take place in star trek you know at least the stuff that i grew up with with tng voyager deep space nine they're the only limited resource that really pops into my head is of ketrasol white for for the uh, gem hadar but again shashank um as a as a person who who grew up outside of the the United States' sphere per se what do you think what do you think these countries are 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 trying to get at and is it something that you think India would also participate in so there is a term used by indian economists called pax indica p a x i n d i c a it is latin it translates to the century of india couple what is going on right now with this shift about what is going on with the dollar and this need for our dependency on oil to continue. And if you, if you just look at the, the seismic shifts that are happening so slowly that we're really not taking time to sit down and think about it a whole lot, I feel like the conversation is turning more and more toward India because the, an article came out today that said India is going to be the third largest economy by 2030, right behind, I believe, US and China. So if you if you take out U.S., which again more and more is is becoming an isolated nation, especially when it comes to economics, and then you take China, which because of its communist policies likes to stay isolationist, it it falls on India to do their best to try to turn the conversation toward us. But going back to the bigger picture, just a hundred years ago, nobody was thinking about oil. That was, it was there was so much of it. 
that it, there was enough to go around. And now we're getting closer and closer to a Blade Runner style apocalypse where once that resource goes away, if you think about it, once oil is gone, the world comes to a stop. Quite literally, planes stop flying, uh, ships start, stop moving, cars stop moving. And we, we almost start descending into the Terran Empire. It'll, it'll become a climate-ravaged, environmentally disastrous society where, uh, you know, kind of loss will stop mattering. And I've, I've been reading so much uh, about just statistics and philosophy recently. Apparently, the human society is three meals away from complete anarchy. So if, if the entire world misses three meals continuously, the world will stop functioning as it is. So that's how fragile we are as a society. And I'm, I'm struggling to remember the name of the episode. I'm sure you can remind me. It's the Star Trek TNG episode where environmentalists show up on the Enterprise and tell them that warp has been hurting the overall space-time fabric. A hundred years ago, nobody was thinking about that. Just like in TOS or even in the first few seasons of TNG, nobody was really thinking about all that. But when that focus came, and this was, I want to say, at least thir almost 30 years ago when this episode came out, you know, that conversation was started in Star Trek. So the, the way our franchise continues to be prophetic is incredible. And you're right. I really think with Discovery, they have the opportunity to actually do an environmental story arc. Just take a full season to talk about the environment and the politics of environment and uh, what happens when things like climate affect space and time overall. Uh, there Again, there's an article out this weekend that talks about how climate change is adding to the migrant crisis. And people don't think about this often because there is not an immediate connection there. But if there is climate change, there are resources that do not come into places where they're supposed to. And when there aren't resources, people try to move to places where there are resources. And that's kind of what the migrant crisis is about, is people not having resources in a place and then them trying to move to a place where they are there. So I don't know if I threw a lot at you. That was not my intention. Uh, but yeah, there is definitely profit here. Uh, and there, there are some really good articles, essays out there that talk about how the climate change phenomenon can be profitable to some people. I don't mean to sound like a Ferengi. That's not my intention. But, you know, peace is a good time for profit and war is a good time for profit. Uh, I was listening to some environmentalist who recently wrote a book about where we'll be in 2100. And the most recommended place he has, as far as climate goes, is Canada. Said everybody should move to Canada because in by 2100 Canada will be closer to the U.S. when it comes to climate. Well, yeah, I, you, you did you did put a lot in there, and I think you know just kind of picking some pieces through there. This is this is economic nationalism at its worst, which is Terran, uh, you know, and we will be talking about the Terran Empire today, so this is fitting. Uh, the way they are trying to throw their the, their weight around and control international markets of a commodity that didn't that isn't necessarily theirs, and I think this also just sort of shows the the limitations and folly of an economic system that bases profit value and and all that stuff over the 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 proper distribution of of a limited resource you're very very right this is limited and we have to start understanding that stewardship is the only way that we're going to not only remain viable as a species but also make things go as you as you have aptly put you know things will come to an end if we run out of oil i would dispute that that oil was still sort of something of a scarcity even in the you know the early 1900s and ultimately i think resources was a reason why the first world war and then and the nightmare of the Second World War. I mean, it all kind of boils down to the imbalance of resources in different places. And that has the same thing with the migrant crisis. And we're going to go to places where capital and resources are starting to sort of coalesce. And, and the West has been a place for that. And I think also you're right in terms of India being a place where capital is starting to coalesce. It's starting to... to um, sort of collect in those in these certain areas and help the people who uh, who aren't in those places where where capital is being uh, is sort of being hoarded and coalesced 
And I, I really do see this only getting worse if, uh, if again, we as a society and other societies don't start standing up to this sort of heavy-handed, imperialistic way of looking at things. And yeah, I think we do right now stand very much on the one of the biggest precipices of, are we going to go the, the direction of the Terran Empire? Or are we going to go the direction of the United Federation of Planets? And I guess uh, it's hard to not be uh, cynical sometimes. So I'll leave the last word to you, Mr. Avaru. Well, I did not want to end our news uh, negatively. So I'll, I'll do my best to get some positivity in there. Maybe it's not related to the world, but we are we are winding down on Star Trek Discovery. And with every episode, I would love to hear your quick thoughts on this. I feel like I have a new favorite episode of Discovery. They are killing it in that show. And people can really say whatever they want about Discovery. But even if you think about two years ago, Star Trek was mostly a legacy product. It was just something that people loved about shows and movies that came out a decade ago and now we are full warp ahead with star trek especially a discovery coming right out of the gate with such a strong second season and people had their issues with first season i'm not saying it was a perfect season but they really improved they listened to people they listened to all the positive constructive criticism and they improved and i don't know where we go from here and i know there's a lot of star trek coming out so I, I really would recommend everyone to hold on to their tricorders because this is only going to get better and it's only going to get bigger. And I am here for it, man. Are you? Me too. The more we talk about this, uh, this, this phenomenon that is Star Trek, the more we're going to get out of it. And yeah, I mean, even just looking at the way social media works, the ability to interact with the writers and the actors, um, obviously, if you haven't seen the latest episode of Star Trek Discovery with a very, very Pike-heavy episode, I'm not going to give any spoilers, but... Um, just just to give you an idea of how much I'm enjoying it, I was watching a, that episode yesterday and there was a very important scene with Pike. And if you've seen this, you can see it etched in your brain because you cannot unsee that scene because it is an amazing moment. Um, I didn't notice that my partner had come in with our dogs and was cleaning them off and was asking for help. I was so zoned in. I didn't even notice the world around me. Um, the, the entire group has been doing a fantastic job. Sinequa Martin-Green has been showing so much emotion and so much range. And she is she is supported by a cast who is, I mean, you can just see the chemistry. So you know what, if we if we act like if we act like that as a family, then we are going to see success. And I think that's why Star Trek is being successful is because we see a crew not only as acted as Star Trek, but we also see a family doing that work. And that's always really great to see. Hey, Barry. Yo. I think there's only one way to get into our topic for today. Glory to the Empire. Joel true. to our main topic. Today we are continuing our Civilizations series, looking at three of my more favorite civilizations, the Q Continuum, the Romulan Star Empire, and the Terran Empire. So definitely maybe some some malevolent forces going to be at play on this one, but we're given so much material with the variety of alien species and their different permutations throughout series and it's always kind of nice not knowing a lot about uh, one certain group and then finding a whole like treasure trove. Uh, I had that uh, just recently when I've been watching my, I've been doing a completionary watch of Star Trek Voyager. I am, uh, I am sadly not a Voyager completionist and I am remedying that as fast as I can. So uh, if our friends at Delta Fly are listening, I'm catching up boys, I'm catching up. Just give me some time. I guess I didn't know that Q showed up in in Voyager and so robustly as well. So this has actually changed. Uh, I'm really glad that we didn't come up with this series earlier because I wouldn't have actually been able to mention any of this. And all of our Voyager listeners would have been like, what is your problem, Barry? There's a whole bunch of awesome stuff that took place that really does flesh out that uh, that group very, very well. So that's actually where we're going to start is the Q continuum. So um, Shashank, 
what are some sort of opening things that, that stick out to you about the Q, about who they are? Obviously, you can't talk about Q without talking about John Delancey. Where, uh, where are we at? Let's, uh, let's get this going. Let's jump right in. But I'm sure we can get into the John Delancey of it all soon enough. But as a race, even if you can call them that, because they themselves like to refer to themselves as the continuum. So I'm going to respect that. Uh, as far as the continuum, the, the group of Q goes... They are very, very similar to Hindu gods for me. That was the first place I went to when I saw the pilot of TNG. This queue is clearly mischievous and fun-spirited and having a blast watching people going through, uh, being put through the test. So that was the first place I went to in my head is Hindu gods. Greek gods, for sure, too. I, 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 I felt like it was a good inverse from what we saw in TOS with whom mourns for Adonis, much of a tragic figure when we when we saw the god in that. Here it's much more of a happy, very much like Loki, the Nord's god. That was a that was a touching point for me too when I when I think about the Q. But unfortunately, Q also represents to me some of 20th century's worst politicians. And the the way they used people, the way groups of humans were used for experimentation and tests and strategies and fodder for for war. There are so many places to go there, but those those are a few initial points for me. What about you? So yeah, we've talked about the Q as sort of a god-like figure. And this, uh, the way I always start when I think about Q is the quote by Epicurus, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Well, then he's malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? And is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? And I do think that the the relationship that Q has with the concept of godhood really does make me see them not as a, a continuous species who has always been occupying this space. It's almost like they have progressed to the point of God, right? Their their exploration and their discovery has taken them that far. And in this case, they've sort of like completed a sandbox game, you know, like Red Dead, Red Dead Redemption or Grand Theft Auto. You know, when you complete that game, you can still go back into the game and, and play around. And maybe there's a few side missions you might have missed or something. But overall, really, what do you do at that point? Usually, you know, a lot of the cheat codes, you have a lot of the items that you should be getting in that video game, and you just basically start kicking down the card castle. And so I see Q himself, the actual John Delancey character, as maybe that kind of bored Loki-like trickster god that you sort of mentioned earlier. He just wants to see if he can sort of corrupt Picard, and it's sort of like this weird sort of long game book of Job that John Delancey's Q does with Sir Patrick Stewart's Picard. And I don't think it would have worked as well if there wasn't as much chemistry between both of those characters. So I'm really happy that that happened. But the idea of a a mortal or um, not omnipotent species getting to that point also actually reminds me of some of the precepts of the religion of uh, the Latter -day, Church of Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ. I, um, I'm not Mormon myself, I'm not LDS myself, but um, what I understand, and those LDS listeners are people who may have a bit more understanding of the Church, is in the afterlife, there is a possibility of a, a person um, to actually sort of take on their own planet and become the god of that planet, as far as I understand. So this is limited. This is very much just uh, outside of my university. There was a Mormon institute, and I had a few friends who were LDS, and I would go play foosball there with them. So this is basically my understanding. So if I'm a little out, then uh, please forgive me. But I do find that they are maybe not necessarily a god species themselves, but one who have just come to that point, and now they're sort of bored, and they just want to. They just kind of want to do whatever. Okay. You officially made the favorite moment of Polytrex for me so far. It wasn't me breaking down the Traveler. It wasn't me gushing over Star Trek Into Darkness. On a Star Trek polit politics episode, Barry DeFord just pulled out the Grand Theft Auto card. Way to go, man. The, no. <laughs> 
and you're absolutely right. It's very much a sandbox for them. You know, uh, much like the Greek gods, I, I also think Q, especially John Delance's Q, had a yearning to play around with humans. And the play around is, of course, his nair gods. Because he kept coming back constantly to be with the specific set of people just to get a blast. And much like the Grand Theft Auto comparison, there is no real consequence for Q's actions. They have continues all over the place. They have all those cheat codes, like you mentioned. It's fascinating that there is a character like Q and the amount of things that happen in that show. It's also not unlike watching Godzilla run through Tokyo every time <laughs> Q shows up. Because when Q shows up, no matter what's happening, it stops happening and Q becomes the focal point. They could be in the middle of war. They could be in the middle of a very peaceful, regular uh, recon mission. And no matter what is happening, once Q shows up, Q is the episode. To command that kind of power, it takes it takes that natural amount of endless resources to pull from, that near immortality. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there is a death for Q. Yes, there is. In its Voyager, where it takes place, there's a suicide, and then there is actually a battle, a whole war that takes place. I'm going to spoil a little bit, but don't worry, it's it's fantastic. Uh, basically, what happens is, is Q has a baby um, with another Q. Uh, originally, it was going to be Janeway, but uh, a few things kind of roll out and it changes. But uh, what basically happens is, is this this Q Jr., who is actually played by John Delancey's actual son. Nice. Which, again, if you're not watching Voyager, you're missing out. Holy doodle. But uh, ultimately, what happens is, is in order to remain within the Q continuum, this young adolescent very you know petulant Q has been given only human abilities and to be reinstated into the continuum or to just not be turned into an amoeba I think is what they continuously threaten that's going to happen to him actual Q John Delancey's Q has to be a father and from now on basically the way it resolves is the way this all works for for this for his son not to be harmed is Q has to speak spend all of his time taking care of and fathering junior Q or Q junior for the rest of Q junior's growth. And so in that respect, he creates his own project. And then that project becomes the encompassing thing that sort of puts him in his place, right? I think maybe to a degree, you can think of the Q as as an embodiment of idle hands or the devil's work. When they don't have anything to do when they're bored, when they've just, they've, they've beaten the game, they've, they've gotten through all the way to the end. And all they want to do now is kick some card castles over, bug some, you know, I mean, it's, it's the same idea of us when I, when I was a little kid, I'd go out and disturb anthills just because really, I mean, I was bored and I needed to do something. So, you know, destroying another animal's day just sort of came to mind. So yeah, idle hands are the de devil's work. And that's, that's sort of the end piece of it is they're not really gods more than they're, they're devils. Have you ever seen the anime Death Note, Barry? I have not. Death Note is a very engaging, rich anime. And it of course covers a lot about death and the sanctity of life and the value of life. But the entire show starts because the god of death or a god of death is bored and he decides, I'm going to start this big, fascinating game of chess around people's lives and deaths. So he leaves the netherworld and comes down to earth. It kind of feels like that with Q sometimes. You're absolutely right. A lot of it comes out of boredom. And there's a really famous quote uh, that says, most of man's problems stem from him not having the ability to just sit quietly in a chair. And I feel like that's very much applicable, not just to human beings, but also to Q. The Q's life could definitely be a lot easier and ours too in the future if he just, you know, keeps to himself. But he just won't. That, that Q continuum, they, they have that yearning. And it's a, on, on a much more serious philosophical level, I think it's a really good way to think about religion. And you're right, the the Mormonism of it all also applies. Uh, but all religion, if you think about it, it's it's kind of like uh, the, 
it's people think of it as as a one-sided relationship as needing religion but truth is religion as an idea even if you take out the supernatural aspects of it the idea for it to exist needs to be in our minds and it needs to override a lot of the aspects that we have as human beings that obsession needs to be there for religion to have the place it does in the world so q is also to me uh, in a lot of ways a metaphor not just for mormonism or the the latter day saint movement but your organized religion in general the the obsession that comes from it absolutely and and you know there there is that serious end of it and the more philosophical deeper piece of it for sure uh, i think though to end on the queue it, it also they do also sort of remind me of the great gazoo from the flintstones that little green alien that would appear and and ruin fred flintstone's life every now and again he just sort of appear and some people i think wonder if maybe that's when the television series uh the flintstones kind of jumped the shark but um yeah, the Great Gazoo, I think, is is maybe a bit of it. I, I do sort of feel like John Delancey must have sat down and, and had a watch of a few of those episodes, because I do see a similarity of the kind of petulant trickster god, your wish is my command kind of uh, person. And I mean, you see that a lot in tapestry in, in both a heartfelt meaning, dark, and also kind of funny way, right? Like, I, honestly, I don't know if maybe I'm the only person who does actually find the Nausicans to be kind of funny. They're 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 comically evil. I don't really know what other purpose they serve. They're sort of like a little little tiny mini predator mouths, and the way. Q meddles with Picard's actual history is actually to send him and bring him and give him a message. And I feel the same way about the great Gazoo and what he used to do with Fred and Barney uh, back in the Flintstones. But uh, I don't know. There, there is there is a bit of um, I guess uh, tongue in cheek that uh, that does come out of it, and I see that connection as well. I don't know if you watched the Flintstones much as a kiddo or not, uh, but uh, definitely they were part of my uh, my Saturday morning cartoons. Or I guess that would have been weekdays. I did. I I love the Flintstones, and uh, being a bigger guy myself, I often think I'm a brown Fred Flintstone, which in my head I think works <laughs> out. But it's a it's a great show. Uh, the Flintstones, and you're right, The Great Gazoo is actually a very good place to go. I did not think of it that way. Hey, uh, if you don't mind me ending on this, I would love to know what your favorite Q quote is. My favorite Q quote? Uh, probably when Cisco punches Q and Q is upset and he's like, you punched me. Picard wouldn't punch me. And then Cisco says, I'm not Picard. <laughs> I always like that. So here's mine. It's from TNG. I'm struggling to remember the episode, but it's a very serious moment because Everything's happening and it's all fun and games. And then Q immediately break, breaks out a serious voice and he goes, if you can't take a bloody nose, maybe you should rather go home and crawl under your bed. It's not safe out here. It's wondrous with treasures to satiate, desires both subtle and gross, but it's not for the timid. I think that's an incredible quote. Uh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm sure somebody listening will tell me which episode it is. But hey, listener, also tell us what your favorite Q quote is. And I don't mean to throw a promotion in here, but if you go to the Tricorder Transmissions website, you can actually leave us some voicemail. And if you read it out to us, we will add it to our episode whenever we do the next episode. I think that was either Encounter at Farpoint or Q Who would be my uh, my assumption. Either it's uh, right at the beginning when they're at the edge of uh, edge of known space or when he takes them on a field trip to go visit the Borg. Um, one of those two. Speaking of groups that uh, border the Borg, the terrifying zombie society that we might be seeing some connective tissue between the Borg and stuff that's happening in Discovery. So again, if you're not watching Discovery, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, the Romulan Star Empire is, for me, the, the, the second piece of a larger allegory for the Soviet Union or for the existential American threat, right? There was a threat to the Americans that, uh, that existed in the 1960s. Of course, we have their first appearance in Balance of Terror. If we go by the lineage of the TV shows, of course, they would have first, we would have first encountered them in, uh, I believe, uh, oh boy, uh, Minefield or, um, or Kirshara. I can't remember. Someone will tell me, but you know the er, those early episodes where they're actually spying on on the uh, the United Federation or on Starfleet that is to sort of see what's going on. They're using those Andorian um, psychics to help them pilot those drone ships. But uh, they've always sort of been that in the shadows 
kind of existential threat. You never quite know. They, they, they keep, they hold everything close to their chest. They have sort of an expansionist policy, and yet at the same time, they're willing to give up quite a bit for even principled victories in a lot of cases. And so, I mean, I think there's a lot of that sort of spy and espionage feel to them. They're not as brutish as the Klingons, but, um, I guess if I was to really double down on who they might have been, I think they, they do represent that more kind of organized fascism. Um, they, they, they sort of make me think of like a, like a, like a South American uh, fascist state, like, like Chile in the 1970s or, or even actually, you know, Franco's Spain to a degree as well. They, they sort of remind me of that. They've got a lot of order. They've got a lot of ways things kind of work. But at the same time, they're they're not a uh, they're not apart from doing some pretty horrific things to get their way. So I've always found the the Romulan Star Empire something really fascinating, and I'm going to pitch something out that I think I've pitched before on the show. But uh, firstly, Shashank, your thoughts on the Romulan Star Empire? Yeah, the Romulans are definitely a Soviet Union mirror to me. I when I saw them first, the first thing I thought of was, come on, it's a it's a name that starts with R and ends with an S. How is that not a Russian's comparison? Come on. Uh, <laughs> especially the things they do with the cloaking technology. And uh, if you think about the time the Romulans were created in the late 60s, and it's it's definitely fascinating to think about where we are now. And in a lot of ways, we are exactly where we were with uh, Russia. It, it might be wearing a different mask, but it feels like the goals and ideals of the current administration in Russia are more or less the same as the Soviet Union. If I could interject for a second, I mean, really, the Romulans were built out of the concept of the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? Um, submarines sort of passing in the night, all that sort of stuff. And yeah, you mentioning that that modern Russia has been sort of flexing its muscles a little bit in places and whatnot, and, and so is China. I've got a bit of a hot take on that, though, in the sense that how many bases um, do does each of those countries have and uh, versus how many bases the United States has around the world. You uh, should Google it. Check it out. You're uh, you're using a device right now to listen to this podcast. Just look up United bases, Army bases around the world that are operated by the United States versus China or Russia. You might be a little bit surprised. And often if you see submarines from other countries bumping into areas that the United States or uh, its allies hold um, hold sway in, Maybe it's just the idea that there isn't really a lot of places to go without bumping into the United States sphere of influence. So sometimes I wonder if the way the Romulans work, especially around the neutral zone, is um, they don't really have anywhere else to go. Um, because if they go in the other direction, they're going to bump into the Borg. So uh, ugh, I don't think that's necessarily what they want to do. And of course, they have two very, very frightening enemies that could attack at any moment, either the Klingons or the United Federation of Planets. Anyways, sorry for taking that on, Shashank. I, I apologize. No, I'm glad you brought that up. And a lot of the bases that you mentioned, in a way, they could have gone either way. It was a 50-50 shot about whether they go to whoever wins the Cold War, the, the two major powerhouses being the then Soviet Union or the United States. And speaking of the Soviet Union, I think everybody should look up. Uh, this is an awesome name. I always crack up when this name comes up. It's called the Treaty of Friendship, Cooperation and Mutual Assistance. I think everybody should look up what that means because it's it'll, it'll surprise you. Uh, and I, I definitely don't look at all of the Romulan Empire more or less as a metaphor. But they're a really good foil if you think about it for Starfleet too. Especially the later things you learn about Starfleet. Now, given where we are with uh, Discovery, I'm not uh, uh, spoilers, minor spoilers. A big part of the plot for Discovery season two is around Section Thirty One. And if you think about it, there is not a whole lot of difference between what Section Thirty One does and the Romulans do now. No, not at all. And I guess that's the thing: is it's a uh, it is section 31 is the police state right it's the it's the state that is trying to assert its power by any means necessary and i think you know like when you look at what happens to uh, Cetal slash um, admiral jerok in the defector right the whole thing was put together to test 
and to to sort of test his loyalty. But I mean, they really just set him up for failure, right? It, it was for their greater interests that they that they basically ruined who would have been an otherwise completely loyal soldier to the end of his days, but for their personal gain. And it's almost it's almost cynical the way uh, Tom Locke puts that all together. And so, yeah, I mean, cynicism with power, I mean, I couldn't imagine of any large imperialist nations being cynical with their power, could you? No, and I think in a, in a weird way, Starfleet also prepares you for that. That is not ever more evident than in Face of the Enemy, an episode we gush about here all the time. It might be my favorite TNG episode, at least my second favorite, but uh, the the way Troy is able to take that on that role on and become that Romulan spy that she's supposed to be. So there is a lot of effort that she goes into personally, but I think part of uh, Starfleet also is learning what the enemy is doing and being so in tune with what the enemy is all about that I'm sure Troy, when she was being that Romulan thought about these things and she thought about her training and she thought about, this is what I know about the Romulans and this is how I get to be a Romulan. She's a pretty convincing Romulan and it's because, you know, Starfleet prepares you for that contingency. And I don't know if that makes Starfleet more evil or a better organization. I would say actually, yeah, the, the whole point of, of understanding the Romulans is getting us ready for in the pale moonlight when we do the Romulan thing to get the Romulans in the war, right? Like, honestly, you know, there's a lot of talk about, oh man, you know, Cisco basically commits a war crime to get the Romulans into the war. But honestly, if I was the praetor of the Romulan Senate and I was told after the war, after the Dominion War in, in DS9, that the Federation tricked us into joining and fighting at their side, I mean, should we, or, or should I, as a, as a Romulan Praetor, be at all shocked by something like that? Because, I mean, that sounds like it came right out of a playbook I would want to do as a Romulan, right? That deceptive, sneaky way of ultimately getting a good thing done. It's an interesting, again, mirror that uh, that the Romulan Empire gives us. And to think for one single solitary second that any of the imperial powers like United States or Britain or Germany or Russia um, in, in the past hasn't used these nefarious tricks to get their way. I mean, come on. Of course they have. They've done it and they continue to do it. And so, yeah, I mean, Romulans are, are a branch of us just like the Vulcans are a branch of us. And isn't that interesting how one group goes in the direction of logic and the other one goes in the direction of some kind of sort of pseudo-fascist but still very logical and surgical society. I don't know if there is a lot left to tell us about the Romulans, but I would really love to see them in Discovery. I would love to see where they are and where they're headed, especially some of the things that we know about them uh, with TOS. I would, I would love to see where they are as a society. And they're an eye for an eye society, and they are a society where everything is cutthroat. And I know that's much more relevant to the next civilization we talk about but the Romulans actually encourage that they encourage that kind of war and that kind of surveillance and uh, yeah I I don't know if there is a better metaphor for them except for the Soviet Union or the Warsaw Pact the the anti uh, NATO that was a big part of the Cold War I would argue that that their portrayal as sort of the Russia Warsaw Pact was was done intentionally in the time I would actually argue that the Warsaw Pact and NATO are far more um, alike than they are different and of course my political views would take me in perhaps a lighter direction and if anyone wants to yell at me about atrocities of the Warsaw Pact um, well <laughs> I don't know shall we start at the Milai massacre or would you rather start at the uh, the coup in Chile so yeah I mean I think the way the Warsaw Pact was characterized in the United States in the 1960s in the 80s um, definitely is how we see the Romulan star empire as they exist but of course there is another empire and I would say that in this respect, this empire is the manifestation in a much more visceral and brutal version or a tone that is something perhaps a little bit scarier because there is no makeup 
changing these people around. There is no shared ancestry with uh, with another friendly alien race. These people are us, and all it is is one quick little nudge into a parallel universe where we find our final civilization, and that is the great fearful Terran Empire. Shashank? What do you got to say about these guys? So when I was researching the Terran Empire and going back and enjoying some of the many, many great episodes uh, in TOS and DS9 and just wherever the Terran Empire shows up, uh, here's what I wrote down. I wrote down the biggest qualities that I found uh, that uh, spoke to me. They're a mechanical society. They're they're very much pro- they're very much profit and uh, selfish need based. They're desire based. They're a cutthroat society. Anything goes in their society. It's much more of a Hunger Games kind of thing uh, than it is uh, whatever the opposite of Hunger Games is. Uh, there is blind loyalty in uh, the Terran Empire that is rewarded. And, you know, you can't get away from that uh, society and not think, oh, my God, these, there are a lot of evil people here. And if you take the words Terran Empire out, all those words apply for our society today where we are as a people. We're all mechanical. We all have our selfish needs. Crimes clearly go unanswered in the society. There is a lot of blind loyalty. Uh, There is fascism on the rise. And the way we are treating our planet, the way we're treating each other, the way we as a people have become uh, to where we are rewarding the lack of emotion and the lack of empathy where we're giving the highest positions of power to these people. I don't know if there is a better metaphor, sadly, for the Terran Empire than 2019 planet Earth. I would call it the Lorca factor. He blended right in. And I think that's the thing is you can have a wolf in the fold. And in our society, there are many wolves in the fold. There was an interesting... um, uh, point that got made, I, I noticed this, and it's on my Twitter feed, you can check it out there, but it's a person holding up a sign saying that uh, in the 1960s, it wasn't about water fountains. And currently, it's not about any sort of migration issue one way or another. This is about hate. And the way our society, when it when it puts itself in this categorizing, hateful, self-serving kind of paradigm, yeah, I mean, we, we, we take extra steps towards being much more Terran-like rather than Earthling-like. And it does trouble me to see a lot of these similarities that, that sort of almost seem normalized now. And we do sort of stand on this precipice, and more so than ever. And I mean, yeah, back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, perhaps thermonuclear war was the greatest existential threat to us. But now it's the resurgence of fascism, because the Terran Empire is truly a fascist organization writ large. It treats other species with disdain. It treats the entire universe, you know, the entire the entire Alpha Quadrant is basically its playground. And when you see what comes of it by Deep Space Nine, yeah, I mean, heck, you you really do see a outsider group, you know, in this case, it's the Cardassians and the Klingons, ultimately squishing the uh, the Terran Empire to a point where they are now the subjugated. And really, and honestly, I really see that. I, th- I see that as the end of fascism, is you're just going to get replaced by another fascist group, and it'll continue in the killing and the inequity and the violence and just all of those terrible things will just continue to perpetuate themselves. It's a, it's a self-fulfilling, uh, self-fulfilling prophecy, and it's a self-fueling machine. Hate is a terrible thing that can take us to very terrible places. You know, an interesting thing that we as viewers don't think about when we watch the Terran Empire episodes is when our people... When I say our, I mean our Starfleet people go to the Terran Empire side or when they are forced to interact with that side and having to deal with the complications that arise from this hole in time space, our people do some evil things. They do some very questionable, very teetering on the side of wrong and evil things. And yet, because we love these characters so much, we we come to terms with it or we normalize it in our heads and we say, oh, this is not really us. This is a mirror universe. You know, that's why it's called mirror is because it's not us. It's what happens in the mirror. It's never real. You know, it's whatever happens in the mirror stays in the mirror. And it's very interesting if you think about the things that 
we as viewers tend to discount when we are just one degree removed from reality, or in this case, the future reality of Starfleet. And that's great. I'm so glad you brought up the Discovery Mirror Universe because I'm a huge fan of that. It's mainly because anyone who knows anything about me knows that my favorite two words that I've learned in 2018 are brutalist architecture. People should look that up. That's fascinating. Thank you, Gersha Phillips, uh, designer, uh, set designer of uh, Star Trek Discovery. But there is almost played for comic effect a scene in one of the episodes in Discovery in which Mirror Georgiou and Prime Burnham are sitting and having dinner and uh, they start talking and they're eating whatever is in front of them and Burnham remarks, oh, this is delicious. What is it? And Georgiou says, oh, that's Kelpian. You're eating Kelpian. The fact that your best friend in one universe is something you're eating in this other universe and she is in such a fix, Burnham, because she doesn't, she can't stand up and throw it away because then they'll know something's up. So she, she swallows it, she eats it and she, she does her best to keep it to herself uh, about the fate that awaits those in the mirror universe. There is a way to think about this comically, but there's also a way to think about this philosophically and metaphorically is what does it say if we are getting closer to the mirror universe and away from Starfleet, where we are getting away from treating everybody equally to basically turning people into fodder? And we are normalizing that because the, that's the reality we live in. It's the frogs uh, who are in such slow boiling water that they don't know that they're being boiled. It's it's one turn after another. Just think about the two news stories that we talked today. Those are things that would be, we would be freaking out about in a much bigger, much more intense way had we not been living through the last three years that we've been living through. So there's a lot there to be said about the Terran Empire. Uh, when you take out the, the costumes and the grandeur and the brutalist architecture of it all, it's it's very disturbing. We're eating each other, and that's what that is. We're literally, if we live in a fascistic society where it's winner-take-all, where it's your interests above others, that's what happens. We eat each other, and that's the perfect example of it. And you think about when Kirk meets Spock, the, the mirror Spock, when Kirk has his first foray there, he does convince Spock to change. You know, in every revolution, there's a man with a vision. And Kirk's not wrong. And I think maybe where this goes wrong, is, where, where this does go wrong, sorry, is in terms of Spock's revolution doesn't doesn't take into a fa- into account the outside nations from the Terran Empire. It, it, the the outside nations are not just going to immediately fall in line and want to be friends with a group who were their slave masters for a very long time. And I think that's something, you know, myself coming from a country that has done its fair share of harm to other people. There have been instances where I've encountered. Uh, say, you know, a person of indigenous heritage not really wanting to associate with me much. And I can take that badly, but also, I guess, you know, or I could, you know, just show, oh, it's racism, it's reverse racism, all this sort of stuff. No, I mean, there's a lot of history there. And I think maybe that was the one thing that Spock failed to do. Of course, there is a little bit more explanation of Spock and his character in the comic books, um, for sure. And I do appreciate how that kind of plays out. But Ultimately, you know, the, as, as Star Trek does in, in every other way, the Terran Empire is there to show us very, very sort of clear-eyed what we're heading towards. We will still get the advancements that we're, we're looking at. It looks very much like technology is going to advance whether we do it or not, or however we do it or not. It's, it's the community, it's the society that we create around that technology. It's the society that we create that will utilize technology. Um, we will decide the direction we go as a people, and I'll be damned if we go in the direction of the Terran Empire. Well, Barry, I don't know if we've said enough about these three civilizations. God knows we could talk about them forever because they are such interesting, endlessly fascinating parts about Star Trek. And we'll definitely continue the civilization series. There are a lot more that we'd like to talk about. And throws your ideas. Tell us what you would like us to talk about. That's uh, civilization in Star Trek. If it's in one episode, if it's in every episode, it doesn't matter. 
if it's one that you think is interesting and worthy of discussion, you can tweet to us on at Polytrex, that's P-O-L-I-T-R-E-K-S on Twitter. It's the same on Facebook. Or you can tweet the Tricorder Show, that's at Tricorder Show. Or you can send us voicemail, like I mentioned earlier, on the Tricorder Transmissions. Just so many ways to get in touch with us. You can tweet to us individually. We mentioned it below before, but Baris is B-J-O-R-N-D-E-F-J-O-R-D. And I am at gutter underscore hero. That's G-U-T-D-E-R underscore H-E-R-O. I don't know if I have a whole lot left to say. <laughs> I'm so sorry I have I have left our listeners disturbed, but hopefully I've, <laughs> I've helped you reflect a little more. And I could not bring the optimism and vigilance that Barry bought today because these are just such scary civilizations for me in general. Uh, while I work on getting the bravery that Barry has, uh, Barry, what will you be up to? Oh, in the meantime, I'm just going to continue my Voyager watch. I'm uh, I'm moving through seasons. I'm doubling up on stuff. It's been a, a real delight. That'll do it for this episode of Polytrex. Live long and prosper. And onward to Star Science.